I find it interesting to observe how the communication in long-term relationships evolves over time, how the meaning and interpretation of words and expressions changes as you come to know the other person more deeply. Think about your communication with someone you've known for years, a friend since high school, a mentor, a spouse, how the things they said and did made much more sense once you'd come to know them well. But early on, you could easily misinterpret and come to wrong conclusions about them. I remember a research mentor who, early on, handed me back a piece of work I'd done and told me it was fine. I was elated. I thought it was headed for publication in a top medical journal. Later, however, I learned he was a master at damning by faint praise. If something was rated fine... I might as well drop it in the shredder on the way back to my office. Of course, there were lots of examples from my marriage. I recall Edwin sending me a note, maybe five years into our relationship, in which he called me a pain in the neck. I read it and burst out with delighted laughter. I saw it in the very saw in it the very compliment to me that he had intended. Of course, I was a pain in the neck. What else did he expect when he married a 48-year-old spinster? I was inflexible and controlling. But when he affectionately referred to me as a pain in the neck, what I heard was that despite some annoying traits, he loved me deeply. And from his perspective, the richness he had found in me far outweighed any of those weaknesses. And I was confident enough in his love for me that if the playful and positive meaning hadn't come through, I wouldn't have been rocked by it. But imagine if he had called me that in one of his first emails. We lived in different cities when we met, and so much of our early getting to know each other was by email. And he had he called me a pain in the neck in one of those early messages I probably would never have written back. I wouldn't have had the context of either his communication style or his love for me to help me hear it properly. Sometimes I think that reading the Bible can be like that. Stuff that seems inconsistent or even disturbing when we first start reading is hard to make sense of when we don't know God. And of course, the rub is that the Bible real, is a really important resource in the path of getting to know God. But if it isn't making sense, how does that help us see God more clearly? It can be pretty discouraging. At the same time, people who are further along the path than us, people we really look up to or authors we really admire, seem to love the Bible. They may even describe it as a wonderful source of spiritual nourishment. We can be left wondering, what are they seeing that I'm not? And that may be a particularly important question as we continue in the series on practices that help us draw near to God. 
Different authors compiled different lists of the spiritual disciplines. For instance, charity, which we talked about last week, probably appeared on less than half of the lists I looked at. However, scripture, reading and meditating on the Bible, appears on every list. My relationship with the Bible has evolved quite a bit over the last six decades. At this point, I would say I love it. I read and pray it nearly every day. I turn to it for instruction and for comfort. I almost always use it as a starting point when I prepare sermons for you. That way, if I totally mess up, at least the Holy Spirit can use the passage I read and teach you from that. Perhaps like many of you, my first encounters with the Bible began at a very young age. In fact, I don't think I can remember a time when I didn't have a Bible. It was black. The King James translation, of course, and the font was pretty small. But it did have pictures in it. I loved the one of Jesus blessing the children. I thought of it mostly as a book of stories, and the ones I was exposed to were happy stories, or at least I saw them through a happy lens. For example, with the story of Noah's Ark and the Flood, I was really happy for Noah and his family and and all the nice animals that they were so wonderfully rescued. I don't recall ever giving a thought to all the people who drowned, including children who were too young to have done anything to really offend God, although that did bother me much later. I liked the stories, but it was hardly a book I would pick up to read on a rainy afternoon. I came to faith in Jesus in my late teens and got immersed in a conservative evangelical context. The Bible became exciting to me. I often had the sense that God was speaking directly to me through it. The group I belonged to took their Bible very seriously, and under their leadership I studied, memorized, and prayed over passages, particularly focusing on the letters of Paul. To be honest, as an introvert and a geek, it was wonderful to be in a social group where the rules of how to be successful were so explicit. It was great to fit in, in a way I never had in high school. So even if some of the stuff didn't totally make sense to me or seemed inconsistent, I worked hard to to suppress that because I needed the approval of the group. Over the next couple of decades, my theological bent gradually shifted. An experience of suffering made me seek out what the Bible had to say about grace. And a desire to embrace some of the mystery of the transcendent shifted me to a more contemplative stance. But while those ideas changed, I never questioned my basic assumptions about the Bible. I saw it, or at least I thought I was supposed to see it, as the inerrant, authoritative word of God. Every word of God proves true, I would recite. Uh, That's Proverbs 30, verse 5, if you wanted to look it up. I treated it like an encyclopedia of God facts, so I could pluck verses out of their context and lay claim to them as promises. But as I got into my 50s, those assumptions about Scripture started to get more and more uncomfortable for me. The two issues that I recall being most problematic were the nature of God 
and the extent to which the content of the Bible was impacted by cultural norms at the time it was written. I read that Jesus was the exact representation of God, and that he both taught and modeled enemy love, and that God ordered genocides. How could I reconcile that? And since the Bible also taught that God is immutable, doesn't change over time, I couldn't say that he had simply improved, resolved his anger issues, and was now a nice guy. Trying to make all of that fit together just made my head hurt. And in terms of cultural influences, some instructions were seen as cultural and could be discarded, while others still held. So we could eat bacon and shrimp, but women shouldn't teach in the church. The institution of slavery is at least tacitly endorsed in both the Old and New Testaments. Yet now we are taught to see that as a remnant of the culture at the time the scriptures were written. But at the same time, scriptures that seem to endorse misogynist and homophobic views are not seen as cultural artifacts. With all these sources of unease, I actually sort of gave up on much of the Bible. I read it less often and stuck to the biographies of Jesus because they carried less baggage for me. And I would read and pray the Psalms because I found them cathartic, but the rest of it I pretty much ignored. I won't go through all the books, podcasts, sermons, and conversations that got me to a much happier place with the Bible. I'll just mention a few high points. I discovered that I was not alone, and lots of other thoughtful Christians were asking the same questions about how to make sense of the Bible. I found it helpful to stop seeing the Bible as a flat text, where every verse carries equal weight, and duels between conflicting texts have no way to be resolved. Instead, I'm learning to privilege the life and words of Jesus. I loved Brian Zond's mantra, God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There has never been a time when God was not like Jesus. We haven't always known this, but now we do. I'm learning to appreciate the impact of the human authors of Scripture and their cultural context on the text. As Old Testament scholar Pete Enns likes to say, in the Bible, God lets his kids tell the story. They wrote what they thought they were seeing, but like kids in an adult world, they may have misinterpreted along the way. And I'm learning to be a better, more rigorous student of Scripture. Simple steps like considering the genre and the context have been so helpful. Really, a lot of my problems were solved by just reading the whole chapter or two that the troubling text was found in. Finally, and most importantly, after losing my Bible and then getting it back, I rediscovered Jesus. And of course, that's the point. That's the reason why reading and meditating on Scripture is one of the foundational practices for experiencing God. I used to read the Bible because I thought I needed to get brownie points from God or to impress my fellowship group. But now I was just hungry for it. 
My brain no longer hurt because I was trying to make the Bible be something it wasn't. And there, in my Bible, I found Jesus, waiting for me just where he had been all along. It's clear that Scripture played an important role in Jesus' life. He heard it, studied it, and memorized it. Remember that he wouldn't have had access to his own copy. He would hear it read together with other believers in the synagogue. And he interrogated the text in the way that is traditional in Judaism, but less common, I think, in Christianity. It's as though we don't want to embarrass God by asking really tough questions of the text. Or maybe because we've been taught that it's the pastor who will tell us what it means. But Jewish readers have always argued with the text and between the texts, pitting prophets against Torah or Torah against Psalm and prophets. That's how they extracted the meaning. And Jesus participated in that from a young age. Recall when Mary and Joseph take him to Jerusalem for Passover when he is 12 years old. They lose track of him and eventually find him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Jesus integrated his understanding of Scripture so that he didn't have an encyclopedia of God facts, but a broad picture of God's saving plan and God's desire for us to align with God's purposes. He used it to position his own life, ministry, and death within the broad context of that plan. He taught from it. He argued with it and highlighted seeming inconsistencies within it. He found comfort and solidarity in it. Let's look at just a couple of specific examples. Jesus uses scripture to correct misapplied scripture. He lets the text argue with itself. In the temptation in the wilderness, the Satan gives him the vantage point from the top of the temple and says, if you are really God's son, throw yourself down. The Bible does say, after all, that God will give his angels a command about you and they will carry you in their hands so that you won't hurt your foot against a stone. Jesus replied, but the Bible also says that you mustn't put the Lord your God to the test. The tempter cherry-picks a verse out of Psalm 91 and applies it to the situation that he has placed Jesus in. But Jesus sees through that. He responds with a higher principle that we are not to put God to the test, a principle that is repeatedly articulated in the Torah. He privileges the Torah above the Psalms. When we get to the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus elevating his, te his teaching over the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. I'm thinking of that section where he goes through commands prohibiting murder and adultery and allowing proportional vengeance. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, turn the other cheek. Instead of endorsing a narrowly defined thou shalt not from the Torah, he calls for a much broader commitment to the kingdom ethic of love. Jesus extends his authority over scripture to selective editing of it. 
Luke records the story of Jesus' first sermon in his hometown, Nazareth. He quotes a well-known messianic, messianic promise from the prophet Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. But when Jesus reads it, he does two things that shock the people in the synagogue that morning. He announces that today that text has been fulfilled in their hearing, essentially claiming to be Messiah. But perhaps equally shocking, he leaves off the last line. He says he is coming to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, but omits and the day of vengeance of our God. He wasn't coming as a vengeful tyrant, no matter how much the people living under Roman oppression might have wanted that. He was coming as the Prince of Peace. As I've been sitting with this message, I did wonder if I was creating a problem for some of you where there wasn't one. Maybe you're fine with the Bible the way you've always read it, and I'm only complicating things. Maybe your traditional approach to that old black King James Version Bible, the one with the nice pictures, works just fine. And in its pages, you find rich connection with God. That's wonderful, and you can ignore most of what I said. But if your Bible isn't working for you, if you feel your brain gets twisted into a pretzel trying to fit it into a rigid framework someone gave you in the past, then I'd encourage you that you are on a path that lots of us are walking, that there are intellectually satisfying and theologically robust ways of seeing Scripture differently that embracing scripture differently can bring a freshness to the spiritual practice of finding God in the sacred text. There are lots of different lenses we can see the Bible through. The technical term for the lens is hermeneutic. So there are literalist hermeneutics, womanist hermeneutics, liberation hermeneutics, Christotelic hermeneutics, allegorical hermeneutics, and so on. The point isn't which one is best or right. The point isn't the lens. The point is the text and encountering the divine in the text. And as you do, seeing God more and more clearly. In the second book of C.S. Lewis's Narnia series, Prince Caspian, the young girl Lucy is on her second visit to Narnia. When she encounters Aslan, the great lion who represents Christ, she thinks he seems to have grown larger than what she remembered. So she says, Aslan, you're bigger. That's because you're older, little one, answered he. Not because you are? I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Bigger.